Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Compound and Friends. I am your host, downtown Josh Brown. Michael Batnick is with me tonight. On the show, we are talking about what happened to all the bankruptcies and what happened to uh, the banking issues that we were so worried about a year ago and a lot of things that seemed like they were going to be really bad and then just kind of went away. We're going to look at YouTube's pay TV subsidiary, which apparently is on fire. We've got some stuff about buybacks, which is a topic we haven't talked about for a while. Buybacks are going to be a bigger part of the investing story this year uh, after taking last year off, let's say. A little bit of an update on earnings season, some stuff on the CPI report and how the bond market reacted. And, you know, a lot of silliness that's been going on, especially in growth companies, NASDAQ stocks over the last couple of weeks. I feel as though some sort of a fever pitch has been hit or struck. I'm not sure how that uh, how that turn of phrase goes, but I, we've hit some sort of a fever pitch. It's probably the way I would put it. And not in a great way. And I want to be as circumspect as possible here at a moment like this, because A, I recognize it could get even sillier. And B, it's possible to say short term, there's way too much enthusiasm, but that doesn't necessarily mean a crash has to be the result. So I'm 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 trying to be uh, as even killed as I can. But Michael and I get into that stuff. I think you're going to love the show. Sponsored tonight by Crane Shares and their new defined outcome ETFs, which we'll talk more about in a second. Uh, I'm going to send you right over, John Duncan, if you please, escort our guests into what are your thoughts. Welcome to The Compound and Friends. All opinions expressed by Josh Brown, Michael Batnick, and their castmates are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Are we even doing a show? Is this is this uh, the metaverse? Where are we? On behalf of my technical team, which is terrible, I apologize to all oh of you. Oh my god! No, I'm just kidding. I think uh, I think we had a YouTube issue. Not not a not a technical issue on our end. Something misfired. We apologize to you guys. I know we kept you waiting for eight minutes. There's a Hopefully. thing called. There's a thing called like irony, and I don't know if I'm actually using the right word here. No, you are. But as we Perfectly. got, as as Duncan came in and said, uh, "Guys, we have a problem." Josh was delivering a beautiful soliloquy about Thanking. all of the incredible work that everybody in our team, our production team behind the scenes, is doing. And then Duncan comes in, uh, "Guys, it was absolutely chef's kiss." We have it recorded. We'll put it. We'll put it on the audio tonight. <laughs> right, guys. I would also say. Uh, I'll never do that again. I think it's a, it's almost like a jinx. You know, Shakespearean actors don't don't uh, use the term Hamlet when they're performing Hamlet. They call it the I'm Scottish a, play. I'm a thespian, of, of course yeah. I am. So I'm not shouting out technical people before we do a live stream ever again. Never. Okay, uh, we have so much to do tonight. It's uh, it's an exciting week in the market, uh, but I, I want to make sure we let you know what's going on with our sponsors, the folks at Crane Shares. Michael. So. Crane shares just launched two defined outcome ETFs. I have a feeling that defined outcome ETFs are going to be the next big category. And when I say next, mm. I mean they, they kind of already are. Uh, innovators had a ton of success uh, defined like launching this category. And what we mean with these defined outcomes are when you're investing in the market, you know, you know there's risk, right? You're like, all right, I've got like this wide range of outcomes in a given year. The SP does this, there. But yeah. now, using basically like liquid structure notes, you're able to say, okay, I don't want all the smoke of whatever it is, in this case, China. Like, I don't want all the downside. And in exchange, I'm willing to cap my upside. I don't need all the upside. I don't want all the downside. So now you could do it. Crane shows is offering it. And I'm pretty sure that it's going to be a big theme in 2024 and beyond. So you can get a defined outcome for China internet exposure 
But what happens? They're capping your upside and your downside. So there's trade-offs. Yeah. You, well, of course. You have launch. You have uh, protection on the downside, and in exchange for that, you're yeah. you're capping your upside. So if this is up fifty percent, you're not getting that. For example, are you wearing uh, are you wearing the villain from Bloodsport on your shirt? Uh, what's this guy's name? Chung Lee. Yeah. Yeah. Hell yeah. Is it, okay. All right. Is that like deliberate because of uh, the the Nasdaq bloodbath or it's what the if, Lunar New Year? Actually, well, say what say what you have to say. S- say what you have to say about the Nasdaq. No, we have other stuff to do first. Okay. Oh, okay. Uh, you're actually you're actually going first tonight, handsome. We had a CPI um, report. Tell us about it. Coming in hot. Coming in hot. Yeah. The not so hot got, though. A little hot. We so we got we got zero point four percent month over month, um, and I think zero point three percent was what was expected. And uh, the market reacted. That's core. I have headline. I have headline plus point three month over month plus three point four year over year. 2.9 was expected. Core, which takes out energy, up 0.4, um, which is a 4.8% annual run rate. So the, it's, it's, it's warm. The warm, market, particularly the bond market, reacted, I guess you could say violently. I don't think that's too strong of a word, right? Like this, this is a um, big move. So he, these, are, these are some of the numbers. Uh, this is the bad because it wasn't all bad. Food at home, zero point, these are month over month, 0.4%. Food away from yeah. home, 0.5%. Major appliances, yeah. I just bought a refrigerator, damn it, bad timing, up 3.7%. Men's apparel, again, these are all month over month. Men's apparel, 4.9%. Jewelry, 6.7%. Hotels, now there's definitely some seasonality weirdness in here, 5.2%. Hospital services, this is a big one, 1.6%. The good news, uh, Used cars and trucks continues to, to go down, down 3.7%. Neil Dutta, here's Neil Dutta. He said, starting with the good news, uh, the disinflation process in core goods is gaining steam. Core commodities fell 0.3% in January, the eighth consecutive monthly decline. That's objectively good news. Um, at least one reason core services ex housing was strong was medical core services which exploded 0.7% month over month, the fastest one-month increase since September uh, 2022. I'm not sure what's going on there. And the TLDR from Neil Dutta is, I can see why markets may push out the timing of the first cut, which it did, but I think there are reasons to expect inflation to return to its easing trend in the months ahead. Go back to first principles. Wage growth is easing as productivity has picked up and keeping unit labor costs in check and longer-term inflation expectations are easing. So it's one print, but it was definitely a little bit spicy. Yeah, and there are a lot of reasons why it's still spicy because wage growth, while it is decelerating, is still growthy. And so this whole idea that the consumer is tapped out or they're out of like saved up cash to spend, fine, but they're making more money and they continue to make more money. And that's been another engine that's kept consumer spending going, but it's not linear in a stair-step pattern forever, up, 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 up. And so I happen to agree with uh, this idea that you may not like every print or you might get these like minor interruptions of of the easing along the way, but not every time is that a reacceleration and then zoom, we're going back to 8% inflation. The real concern is how long it lingers um, above 3%. That's really like like right now, because if it lingers above 3% for six more months, the Fed will con- keep conditions tight and more and more things will break. So that's really, that's really the, the, the issue here. Um, and unfortunately, you keep getting data points like these. That's where we're going to go. Hey, guess and what? they've told you. They've told guess you what? they're going. Not yeah. only that, if we get a few more readings like this, and listen, this might just be a blip, right? Next month, we might be talking about that there were seasonal reasons and other reasons why this is more noise and signal. However, but let's just play it out and just say that if we do get another reading or two like this, what if there's talk about not rate, not uh, pause, not cut, but additional rate hikes? Yeah. Uh, well, that that's the thing that I think uh, is probably the number one risk to the market outside of unknowable geopolitical stuff is the Fed actually having to do more. I feel like the bar is really high on that and we're not going to get there. I mean, who knows? Just my guess. But like, if you ask me what's worse for the market, 
um, a 50 basis point emergency cut out of nowhere that rattles everyone, that's probably not great. Uh, a 25 basis point rate hike out of the blue is maybe the worst worst case scenario for this year. Whether or not the Fed does six or three cuts is not risky to me. Like that's not the risk. How many or how soon is not the risk. It's it's an unexpected either a double cut or a hike that that would be the thing that really throws a wrench into the market. There's no reason to think that either of those things are, are about to happen. I'm just putting it out there that that Correct. would be the the thing. Uh, so so um, high. What is the uh, what is the uh, what what happened to the uh, what happened to the odds? Uh, I'm seeing 92 percent chance of no cut in March. Um, and an eight percent chance of 25 basis points. So let me go. A let month me go ago, to, it was 19 percent. So let me go. I'm going out to May because March March is certainly off the table. Um, May. Wow, a month ago, there was a zero percent implied probability. Which, by the way, just shut off, please. When we're talking about these implied probabilities, they're wrong all of the time, right? All of the time. In fact, a month ago, there was a zero percent implied probability based on where where bets were made on Fed funds futures, there was a 0% applied probability that rates were going to stay where they are today in May, a month ago, 0.0, literally. Now it's 65%. So certainly take these with a grain of salt, but it does tell you where the market anticipates rates to be, even if it's not accurate, it's still useful. Yeah. It's, a betting, it's a betting market. They're looking, they're looking at pricing in the, in the treasury market and they're inferring this is what participants are expecting based on where those bets are are clustering. So getting to the market, we got a little bit of a VIX spike, um, closed at 15.8, certainly, you know, still, it's a small spike, but it's a spike nevertheless. We haven't had one in a while. Um, this is fun. Wait, this is funny from Sean Graylish. What, what, what do you like better, implied probabilities or defined outcomes? <laughs> I'm a fan of everything. Listen, I, I love it all. Uh, all right, so high beta stocks, just looking at ARC as a proxy, got killed today. Down 5.6%. The Russell 2000, which is uber sensitive to interest rates, took it on the chin, down 4%. I'm pretty, I mean, the the, the S&P 500 is so gosh dang strong. We haven't had a 2% pullback in like 75 days. And on a day like this, where inflation comes in hot, where yields went screaming higher, the best the bears can do is a 1.4% sell-off. I really like the action today. Because Super I saw Because I saw non-technology stocks take in the flows coming out of NASDAQ, at least that's how it appeared to me, who really knows. But I saw like individual stories get credit, uh, like like Home Depot and Lowe's, there was some upgrade activity there. And uh, I, I kind of like how those stocks held up in, in the maelstrom. Um, I just, this is, this is my kind of tape. I hate it when it's two sectors going up uh, 2% a week and nothing else, you know, everything else like just kind of like kicking rocks and Everyone talking about the same five stocks. I'm not into that. This is my shit right now. The market, I is, like it. I love it. The market is so far above the 200 day. And yeah. listen, it's one day. Can we drop another 1.4 percent tomorrow? Yeah, absolutely. I'm just saying, given how extended we are, given how quiet it is, given how quickly people like run out the door and look for a reason to turn bearish, down 1.4 percent. That's it. That's it. Um, also worth pointing out, stocks re-correlated with bonds on this particular move. And again, I know it's one day. It's one day. Yep. Um, but yep. that yep. tells you why they're going down. It's not a, it's not a secret. Bond market volatility um, spooks the shit out of the S and P. We, and 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 especially the uh, long duration growth names. We all know it. Um, and it's not every day, and it's not all the time. But when it comes back, it's dead in your face. Like it's not a mystery. Uh, what's driving people's uh, behavior right now? So, Josh, is a top in. I think I think the Nasdaq. I, I would say there's a better than fifty percent chance that the Nasdaq has topped for the year. I would say I am one hundred percent certain that the Nasdaq has ninety nine percent certain that the Nasdaq has topped for the quarter. I think we I think we have a lot of digestion to do in the Nasdaq one hundred. It does. It's not a sell signal. I don't know anything uh, extra special than anyone else knows. I'm just, I'm giving you my take. I think what we saw with some of the stories in the last week or two, and I know these are anecdotes, but I'm combining the anecdotes with data. There is no reason on earth that NVIDIA needs to trade $40 billion worth, worth of stock on a daily basis. It just, it's just none. It's, it's its own casino. 
It's an algorithm casino. What they're doing is eating up the lunch of all the retailers who are consistently trying to call a top in the stock with options trades or whatever is going on. And then the algorithms are feasting on it. It's it's like a ridiculous maelstrom of activity that serves absolutely no economic purpose. And I know there's always that one stock that's like that. And it's been Tesla before and it's been Apple before. I get it. But what's going on with NVIDIA, just like trying to watch trying to watch the tape and make any sense out of this, you you literally cannot. By it, the way, it was just, flat today. Dude, it I, went green in the middle yeah. of the morning for like for no reason. What? Oh, oh, I guess it liked the CPI report that every other large <laughs> cap grows. It's because it's an options-driven algorithm hedge fund junkie casino. And when you start to see that become so obviously the story of the day every day, and everyone has an opinion on NVIDIA and uh, people that don't even know how to pronounce it, um, podcasters who manage no money and have been calling the top in NVIDIA for 3,000 percentage points, uh, every day is, is going to be their lucky day where they get it right. The whole thing has just become such a freak show. And that doesn't happen at bottoms or in middles. That only happens at at least short-term uh, tops. I know we so. don't we don't get to choose. I would love for the Nasdaq 100 to go sideways. It's too much. It's just if you look at the chart, I have to like take it in because it's just gone vertical. Nvidia, for example, if you zoom out on Nvidia, the the price is 720 bucks. Honestly, this thing could go down to 520 dollars, and nobody. Oh, this is cool. This is fun. Uh, I'll just keep it rolling. Nvidia could go down to $500 on the chart, and long term, it wouldn't even make one shred of a difference. Yeah, I, and I, I, I think uh, there's like a childishness to the the focus on Nvidia, and I, I understand where it's coming from. Like people have made tons and tons and tons of money in this stock, and the higher they've paid for it, the more quickly they've been rewarded. It's almost weird, like. If you bought it in the middle of 2023, you did pretty well. But if you bought it like a month ago, you did even better. Like it's it's like it's like crazy the rate of change here. So I totally understand it. And on some days, it feels like, well, what else would people talk about? Well, I'll give you some what else's. Here are some. Look, I, the premise of this is they don't ring a bell at the top, but sometimes, sometimes they sort of do. Yeah. Sometimes they sort of do. Um, this is like. Each one of these things taken on their own, I would not say like, oh, call the top, because I don't do that. Um, but it's a tapestry of shit going on. Here's uh, Jeff Bezos selling $2 billion of Amazon stock. And this stock has rallied, but it has not meaningfully like taken out the old high. So all this stock has done really is gain back some of what it lost in 2022. And Bezos drops a 12 million share sell block um, apropos of nothing, I think we all know he's not paying bills with this. He's not paying yeah. for a daughter's wedding. He wants to peel off a billion or two bucks. Or God yeah, bless. Two, peel off two, two billion. Good. Just saying. One more thing. Uh, what else? No, but the next this? one. The next one is the thing. I mean, this, this is, is the thing. this is what? Like, what the hell even is this? I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think. Like, what was the reason for saying this out loud? Um, John Sam Altman seeks trillions of dollars to reshape business of chips and AI. Five to seven trill. What? what? He said this in, in the United Arab Emirates, which I guess if you're going to ask for $7 trillion, that's where you should do it. Uh, he wants, what, what is he saying? He's in talks with investors, including the UAE, to raise funds that would boost the world's chip building capacity, expand its ability to power AI, and cost several several trillion dollars between five and seven trillion dollars for what? For literally what? Uh, even Jensen Wang, like without saying it the way I'm about to say it, was like, "What the fuck is this kid talking about?" The reason why you could maybe think that five to seven trillion would be necessary to rebuild all of the world's data centers in order to handle AI is because the chip technology we have today isn't where it will be in five years or in 10 years. Everything gets cheaper, not more expensive. So computing power. Uh, so, so even Jensen Wang's like, no, 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 no. We, we don't need the energy of three more suns to run the amount of data centers that, that, uh, that uh, Sam Altman's talking about. 
For so the, the hyperbole is just crazy. For context, so he's talking about five to seven trillion. That's the headline. Total U.S. From, this is from the journal. Total U.S. corporate debt issuance last year was one point four four trillion. Yeah. So, so the, the, and let me ask you this: the cloud, the cloud should this. cost uh, the cloud should cost more than it costs to run the United States. So this guy is going into the UAE Shark Tank, and he's looking for five trillion dollars for twenty five percent of his company. <laughs> right. Uh, this is interesting. I'll take a valuation say, equal to the entire U.S. stock market, please. Same article, Wall Street Journal. Global sales of chips were five hundred twenty-seven billion last year, and are expected to rise to one trillion annually by twenty thirty. Global sales of semi-manufacturing equipment last year were a hundred billion. So, all right. So, it's a huge ecosystem. It's a six hundred thirty billion dollar ecosystem. We think going to over a trillion. Uh, six years from now, that's a pretty good Kager. That doesn't sound like somebody needs to uh, invest $7 trillion right now, to re- especially considering how useless all this shit is. And that's a, a, a later conversation we can have. To, to take the temperature of the market, uh, nope, it's Lily tweeted, arm up another 30% and over 100% in the past week. NVIDIA surpassing Amazon in market cap. Super microcomputer up 200% year to date. Definitely things you don't see at the parabolic move at the end of a bubble. Yeah, well done, Lily. Totally agree. This arm thing requires a couple of minutes of of our attention because not only do you not not only does something like this normally happen at a top, it just doesn't normally happen even at a top. Like this is one of the most outrageous things. So my understanding, and you've probably read more about it than than I have, is that this move in arm, where effectively it went up a hundred percent in two days around options time. Do I have that right? Unbelievable. I haven't been paying attention to this. Okay. Uh, is entirely options related. So so there was such demand for people to get long this stock in any way they could that options activity alone explains the, the move. Here, let me read this. This is Bloomberg. Arm Holdings soared again on Monday, extending a three-day rally that has driven its value up almost 100%. After a blockbuster earnings report last week showed AI spending as bolstering sales, the chip designer's shares rose 29% on Monday to close at a record on volume that was more than 10 times the average over the last three months. The advance pushed past the stock's gains to more than uh, more than 90% in the three trading sessions since they reported on February 7th. All right, so that's a 70 RSI. NVIDIA is an 83 RSI. Uh, super super micro computer is a ninety four RS. I've I don't think I've ever seen a ninety four RSI. Have you? I don't know. I mean, that sounds crazy. So, so somebody had to buy the top yesterday. So the the mark uh, arm holdings closed down twenty seven percent from its high yesterday. Uh, Einhorn was on Barry's podcast this weekend talking about like broken markets, and I think some of it some of it is, is hyperbole, but there's no doubt that some of this shit is just totally obscene and broken. Well, I would say this. I have seen things that are obscene and broken. And eventually, if they're unsustainable, then by definition, they, they don't get sustained. Like they, they heal themselves usually by a lot of people losing a lot of money. Like, like I have like concrete examples from my career and they all happened at or near, not at exact tops, but at or around tops. The level of enthusiasm required to get a company the size of an arm to double in three days on 10 times normal volume, you, you just cannot get that in anything other than at least a short-term top. I was pitching shares of 3Com. They were about to spin off Palm Pilot as an IPO. If you were a shareholder of 3Com, you got one share of Palm Pilot. They were going to take 10% of it, do an IPO, distribute the other 90%. You follow me so far? Palm but by, by the time the, the mania was finished, they thought Palm Pilot was the iPhone like 10 years before the iPhone. By the time the mania was finished, Palm got itself public and had a larger market cap with only 10% of the float trading than its parent company, 3Com, which owned 90% of it. How is that possible? How is that possible? It's not possible. Man. And that did not end. That did not end. That ends with... Palm at a billion dollar valuation on its way to nothing. And I, 
I have stories like that collected. They're all at tops. Can we just so, say one thing, just just to yeah. pump the brakes a little bit? Like we're not giving advice, but certainly if you have an if you're like a accumulator index fund, it's like we're not sounding the alarm bell. But if you're thinking about taking leverage out to buy Nvidia tomorrow, maybe pump the brakes. Well, so I'm not calling out a crash. I'm saying I think the top, I think the top for the Nasdaq 100 for the quarter is in. And if this were right. the top Good. of the I, year, I, I would right. not be at all shocked. I really wouldn't. I just think people are people need to check themselves. That's not about me checking people. I don't do that. I don't give a shit what anyone does. I'm just I'm speaking for myself. My last three or four trades that I that I've done or have been sell sells. And I'm not like trying to pounce on a on a semiconductor stock here. So maybe I'm a contrary indicator. You want to fade me? Go buy go buy AMD. I don't know. I think you what know. you're trying to say is curb your enthusiasm. Like just let's can we all relax? I'm very excited about AI. Okay. I'm in the club. I've been talking about this shit before most of you were born. Let's just calm down though. That's all I'm all saying. Right, let's, all right. Let's talk about earnings. Okay. Uh so Brandon Gomez tweeted, we're halfway through earnings. Uh, here's where we stand. Current earnings growth is up 8.1%. We're on pace for the strongest earnings growth of, of 2023. EPS beats are overshadowing lots of revenue misses. Uh, what are your thoughts so far on where we stand? So the reactions haven't been that terrible, like anecdotally, like the big stocks especially. I know people weren't thrilled with like, Alphabet dumped the night that it reported, but outside of that, I feel like I uh, I feel like the big companies that really matter to the indices have held up. Um, Nick Colas took a look at Q4 earnings season, and he had a different take than I did. He calls it a C plus, and I'll tell you what he's looking at and why he arrived at that conclusion. And this is as of I think yesterday, so he might have missed a few reports today, but the big ones are all in sixty seven percent. Uh, have reported Q4 numbers. 75% have beaten earnings expectations. That's better than the 74% that's average. It's, average. it's a touch lower than the one in five year averages at 77%. Okay, fine. In the aggregate, earnings are 3.8% ahead of expectations. This is well below the one, five, and 10 year averages, which are 5.7, 8.5, and 6.7. Um, 65% of companies have beat on revenue. Slightly better than the 10-year average, below the one in five. Reported revenues have come in 1.2% ahead. That's basically the same as the 10-year average, but well below the one in five-year averages. Um, he's saying generously he'd give it a C minus. While it's performing in line in revenue and earnings, this is Nick speaking, um, the amount of the beats is lackluster. In scholastic terms, companies are getting enough right answers to pass but their grasp of the subject matter is tenuous. That's why star pupils like Meta and Arm stand out so much from the rest of the pack. Um, he, he's got a silver lining. The good news is that expectations for the quarter that we're in are barely higher than the quarter we've just gotten the report. So the bar is not uh, being materially raised, and maybe that'll help us as we get into uh, next season's reporting period. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, it's nice that earnings are not contracting, but they, they're not roaring higher by, by any means. Stocks are. And we should just like be aware of that, that slight disconnect. What do you think? Um, yeah, I mean, so Microsoft and Google both traded down pretty bigly after earnings, but they've, they've recovered a lot of it. The yeah. equal weight index has gone sideways for the past couple of weeks, so that's not bad. I mean, stocks are trading decently after earnings. Obviously, there's been some stinkers. Uh, unfortunately, I own a few of those stinkers, but it's been a mixed bag. Yeah. Uh, one thing that we haven't talked about in a long time on the show, because it really hasn't been relevant since rates went up, uh, but buybacks, and they're sort of making a comeback. I think one of the things that happened in 2022 was a lot of people got spooked. A lot of CFOs um, were staring down a very likely, in their minds, recession. And a lot of capital allocation decision-making probably got more conservative. And then there was the whole layoff thing. And- we haven't had the recession. Cash balances have built up. Margins have held up. And companies are not doing tons of M&A. So, like, what do you do? You do bigger buybacks again. Uh, Bloomberg says S&P 500 firms are expected to repurchase $885 billion in stock this year, which would be up 10% from 23, but down 4% from 
2022, and most of those 22 uh, vintage buyouts were decided in 21. Keep that in mind. Um, do I don't you think blame any come of back the, like this. I don't blame any of these companies for operating this way. It would have seemed idiotic uh, at best to be rebuying stock aggressively in 2022, even though the shares were getting more attractive, given that we all thought a recession was coming in 2023. It just goes to the inevitable nature of how, how pro-cyclical buybacks are. Unfortunately, yeah. they halt them when they should be pursuing them in hindsight. And when the markets are rebound, they're at all-time highs. They start buying them back. But don't, you think, but don't you think it's responsible to halt them if you think business totally. conditions are about to rapidly deteriorate? Totally. And it's also a really yeah. bad look to accelerate buybacks when you're doing layoffs. So, yeah. I agree so, with that, too. So there's, there's a chart from Goldman Sachs that just shows how dynamic capitalism in the United States is, particularly at the company level. So this is a little bit confusing, but let me just walk you through it. We're looking at a chart from Goldman that shows the year-over-year growth in the S&P 500 for their cash, and it's showing CapEx, and then R&D, and then dividends, and then buyback. So let's start with CapEx. So in the fourth quarter of 2022, companies were aggressively spending money um, in this fashion. It's looked, looked and then and then you see the baton shifting to R and D, and then you see dividends coming down, and it's shifting to buybacks. And like look how just it all, the, look how coordinated it looks. Yeah, look, the the the, the dynamism with which these companies operate is nothing short of astounding. It really is. So, so I'm going to tell you, put that chart back up. It's like it's like ten firms giving all the advice to these corporate treasurers. So Goldman Sachs is telling them what to do, right? Uh, like they're, they're, they have consultants telling them, oh, you know what's hot right now? Everybody's buzzing about CapEx. And then the ball moves and it's like, you know, what people really want after a year like last year is higher dividends. This is like political campaigning almost. Like the uh, chart off, like the, they're getting the message from their consultants and their consultants have their ear to the street and they're talking to hedge funds and institutional and uh, pension managers, and these things come back around. So I think the I think the puck is going back to, hey, you know nobody ever gets fired for doing a buyback, right? Like like what should we do? Should we do M and A? No, there's a communist at the FTC still for another year. Let's not open that can of worms. What about dividends? Ah, we we uh, we we raised the dividend last year. What about our R and D? We're already doing all these outlays for AI. How about buyback? Yeah, do the buy, hit the buyback button, and it's uh, it becomes a meme. So I, I well, think they're also they're also very aware of what Wall Street wants. And last year, dividends were not hot. Like dividends, dividend payers got destroyed last year relative to the rest of the market. And another example of how incredibly uh, how incredibly well run these companies are. Next chart: corporate transcript mentions of operational efficiency. And yeah, the trend of this has been up and to the right. But like, really, look at look at the most recent quarter. It's just exploding. These companies are giving Wall Street oh exactly God. what it wants. It's so perfect. Like operational efficiency became That's the, the word du jour. It became the meta, like it became the meta uh, creed accord, and everyone else takes it up. It's almost like a, a battle chant. It's a, it's amazing. Um, back to Bloomberg. U.S. companies have announced $105 billion in planned share repurchases in the first seven days of February, surpassing the full-month tally in January. It's the strongest start to a February ever for announced buybacks and the second best start to a year after 2023. So I suppose if we don't have some sort of like systemic freakout in the banking sector or commercial real estate – and everybody in the S&P feels fairly confident, uh, you're going to see buybacks play a bigger role in the market than they did last year. Uh, and they do have a stabilizing effect. And I'm going to tell you one other thing, and somebody might disagree with me, and there's no way to know for sure until the year ends. I know that tech companies do the biggest buybacks in dollar terms. Like, obviously, Apple doing $100 billion programs is not going to be matched by anyone else. But proportional to the market caps, I actually think a buyback theme uh, favors non-NASDAQ giants. I think it's like more impactful when you see FedEx and American Express buying back stock than it is at this point when Microsoft buys back stock. Like 
how much of the market cap will Microsoft and Apple buy? We have companies in the S&P that could comfortably buy 1% or 2% in, in 12 months. So Air, Airbnb, after the close, just announced that uh, they authorized a $5 billion share repurchase program. Oh, that's interesting. Is that their first? I think so. I bet you it is. I think uh, so. Anyway, so tech will be a big part of that $885 billion, obviously, in dollar terms. The question is, which stocks are most benefited by a, a recovery and buyback activity? And it might not be the companies doing the biggest dollar amount um, because some of that will be a function of the, uh, the market cap. So something to, something to keep our eyes open for. I want to say one more thing on buybacks. Uh, Larry Cunningham, who is – how do I describe him? He's like the dean of board of directors slash shareholder – uh, like what, did he what's write the, the, right? War, the Warren Buffett way? Which book did he write? He's written a lot on Buffett. Uh, he actually has a new article in um, the uh, Museum of American Finance on Charlie Munger. But he wrote uh, Dear Shareholder. No, we think. didn't. No, that Who was, that that? was, uh, that was uh, Jeff Graham. So he, so he wrote the other one. Some, something about board, uh, boards of directors. I don't know. Look it up. Anyway, he's smart. Uh he wrote the uh, whatever. Keep going. All right. Uh, that was Jeff Graham wrote. Dear shoulder. He wrote. He wrote beyond Berkshire, beyond Buffett. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Larry Cunningham mentions on his blog, which is a a good one. It's called Across the Board, and he's he's at, at a firm called Mayor Brown, which I suppose is a consulting firm for boards of directors. Uh, but he talks about this thing where the SEC last May tried to put a new rule in place that would compel management of publicly traded companies to justify why they're doing a buyback, which seems weird because the justification is we have an excess of retained earnings and we want to return it to shareholders in a tax-friendly way and shrink our float and grow our value. It seems pretty obvious. But of course, there is a part of the investing public or the commenting public that thinks buybacks inherently lead to inequality in society and bad outcomes for certain workers. And so they did this thing. And then there was a court ruling in October, and the court established that the SEC failed to follow required procedures in adopting the rule. And the SEC said in December, well, then I guess as 2024 takes effect, we'll just go back to the old rule because we don't have time to fix what you're saying is wrong. So that was interesting. And I'm going to, I'm going to quote uh, Cunningham. He said, the SEC therefore announced that applicable requirements revert to those in effect before its rulemaking effort, meaning companies do not have to explain their buybacks. The episode not only ends the SEC's efforts on the share buyback front, but bodes ill for their other rulemaking efforts, including its climate disclosure rule proposal. On the buyback front, state law lets corporations repurchase their shares, and leading investors say buybacks can be rational and shareholder-friendly. Proponents of the stakeholder model of corporate governance, which, by the way, is in retreat everywhere, criticize buybacks as harmful to workers or social equality. So the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals vacated the rule because they say the agency didn't implement the rule correctly. And so it sounds like a technicality, but... Larry Cunningham is saying it's probably dead for now. Um, and that, I think the whole stakeholder thing is on the run. I think people are kind of done with, with, with – people in power are not afraid to say that they don't agree with this stuff anymore. And a lot of things are going back to the way that they were. And this is one example. So if, if companies don't have to justify buyback activity this year, that probably bodes well for continued buybacks. I think you'd, you'd agree, like on the surface. Yeah. Uh, he wrote the essays of Warren Buffett too. Remember that book? Yeah. Yeah, he's, um, like, the, he's like the guy. He's the, he's the guy. All right. Last week, we had Sembolus on TCAF, and we were talking about he likes to poke at the Armageddonists. Um, and I want to share a chart as just uh, just on this topic. So I remember last year, this was making the rounds. I'm talking about U.S. bankruptcy filings by month. And at one point uh, around the, the SVB regional bank blow up, uh, uh, U.S. bankruptcy filings by month 
was definitely trending in the wrong direction. If you, if you take out 2020, this was like at the highest level in really a number of years. And now that this chart has reversed course and come all the way back down, and credit to Carlos Quintanilla for sharing this, but nobody wants to talk about this. Like nobody wants to talk about the fact that this wave of bankruptcies that was predicted never materialized? Correct. Yeah. Why would you? We just sweep it under the rug. Up oh, another prediction say, of, of Mike, doom I, never can I, came Can true. I say one thing though? This is a very, very short-term history. Um, and there's never, there, like we almost outlawed bankruptcy during the pandemic and we flooded the system so that there wouldn't be. This is not like what a typical uh, economic slowdown would lead to. I think you'd get many, many, many more bankruptcy filings in like when this thing finally ends. And it could, I feel like it could change really fast. I, I'm not. I'm not sure why we think that this has to be gradual. I, I guess is what I'm. What I'm trying to say. I'm only making the point that people share bad news, and then when the bad news dissipates, it's. Yeah. Well, of course. Oh, that emergency I told you about didn't happen. Yeah. Never mind. I mean, um, <laughs> you mentioned something about banks. I forget yeah. who shared this chart. Uh, this is from Morgan Stanley. Look at this. Large cap banks have their highest excess capital levels on. Record well, over $180 billion <laughs> of excess capital. We should point out that they have to uh, if, if they're going to remain in, in accords with uh, Basel II and all of the new rules here that came about in the last 15 years after the GFC. Most of this is not uh, – most of this – some of this, I should say, is not voluntary, and so it's expected. But I agree. It's still, it's still like – it's good news. Like if a blow up is coming, this is not, I don't think, this is not where you want to look for its origin, right? You, pro you probably want to look elsewhere if there's going to be some kind of major issue because these look, put that back up. Like what would you want this to look like if not this? And I don't even know all these, some of these tickers like Northern Trust, State Street, the smaller ones. Uh, yeah, Bank of New York. This is what you would want this to look like, isn't it? This is this 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 brings me comfort. Uh, it's heartening. Does, does it, heartening. Does it, give, does it give you heart? It gives me tons. Do you of remember heart. that from uh, Succession? This is no. this heartens me. Uh, Wamsgans is is saying that to uh, to Logan at the end because he's like, "Don't worry, this I'll take care of you" me. or something. Did you see the meme of Kyle Shanahan sitting up against like uh, an equipment box? Oh, juxtaposed with Kendall sitting down Kendall, and yeah. like, and shit hugging him. That dude's young. That dude's younger than me. Shanahan, is he? He's, what is he, 45? Yeah. I also think Andy Reid f***ed up a bunch uh, early on in playoff games and stuff. Like, he, he'll, be, he'll be all right. He's got time to – he doesn't have – listen, he doesn't have Patrick Mahomes. <laughs> Andy Reid had the same reputation. He's not a bad in coach. In Philadelphia all these years. All these years, he couldn't get over the hump. Happens. Yeah. Right. That's my point. It's uh, – it's – it's, it's a little bit of a race, but it's also a little bit of a marathon, I think, at a certain level. Um, YouTube, uh, YouTube is bigger than Netflix by one important metric. This really stood out to me. Uh, I just, we'll, we'll go through this quickly. Neil Moen is like the CEO of YouTube internally at uh, Alphabet, and he does an annual thing where he, he, he almost like did like the state of YouTube. And I think he does this every year. Um, but he said that, according to Nielsen, Nielsen does a, a streaming report in the United States. YouTube beat Netflix in TV streaming 11 out of 12 months in 2023. I think YouTube TV is $73 a month. Do I have that right? It's, it's I don't know. I don't, like, I don't pay for like, it. Okay. Um, YouTube, but but, but it, YouTube TV does not have a ton of subscribers. Well, I'm going to tell you how many, actually. It, this is their live TV service. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Eight million subscribers. That's nothing. Yeah. YouTube subscriber growth. Uh, uh, the, so the video platforms, premium and music streaming services. So you could subscribe to music via YouTube, right? What does premium you, give you? Just, just no commercials? You could download the videos and watch them offline. It's, you get a bunch of stuff. You can edit your own clips of them. Um, so... Oh, here. The video platforms, premium and music streaming services surpassed 100 million subs in the quarter ended December. That's a big deal. Um, 
YouTube is now the main driver of subscription growth for all of Alphabet, according to Sundar Pichai. Moen also emphasized in the letter, the stark divide is gone between content from creators and content from the major studios. And we know that's true. Like Mr. Beast stuff looks like it's on a par with anything Amazon Prime is making. And the proof of that is Amazon Prime, I think just gave him $100 million to do stuff for them. So the creators on YouTube look less amateurish with every passing year. And uh, here, YouTube is a leader in revenue sharing with creators. Yeah, this, this number is wild. Top creators on the platform, such as Mr. Beast, who has 225 million subscribers, recently has vocalized his hesitancy to upload videos to competing platforms due to low pay. So YouTube is winning over the creators. They paid you know out much $70 billion pays? to uh, artists and media companies last year, uh, over the last three years. That's the highest of any social media platform. So Instagram billion, is not paying like that. 70 billion over the last three years. So YouTube has the most generous ad uh, or revenue share with their creators. They pay out 45%. Yes. And of course, most of that money is going to like the top accounts. It's not divided equally. That's like, that's the Pareto principle, like get used to it. Right. So if you're uploading videos for 300 people to watch and they pay you a dollar, don't be upset. Like that's not what they're trying to incentivize. They're trying to incentivize mid-sized creators to become large and large to become global. And it's happening. And what's so funny about Mr. Beast is he is the least famous looking famous person yeah. I've ever seen. He took a picture in the Super Bowl suite with Kim Kardashian. It fucking looks like she took a picture with a fan. And meanwhile, if you talk to somebody under the age of 20, his face is like one of the most recognizable faces they know of. That's funny. Like, I've never watched one of his videos, but I, I know he's gigantic. Gigantic. Yeah. And like I give him so much credit. It's not for me. That's not, I'm not the audience for, right. hey, we're going to drive a bulldozer into a pit full of alligators and see who wins. Like I don't give a shit about that. But for people under 20, he's as big a star as, as anyone, quite frankly, uh, that you could think of. It's just interesting that, that how stark that divide is. The money divide is no longer there, though. Yeah. So top tier creators and media properties on YouTube are getting paid as though they're on Netflix. So anyway, give that a read from Neil Mullen at uh, YouTube. I thought that was really uh, interesting. Okay, we're going to make the case and then do a mystery chart. All right, Josh. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm done this time for real. And the next time I do this, you could slap me in the face. And remember that time I said I was done? Did you, panic sell, you panic sell China? No, 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 not a panic. Uh, sell. Okay. No, I, no, no, okay. no. I did sell it, but it wasn't a panic. Okay. All right. I'm going to make the case. I'm going to make the case why we should avoid losers. Okay. All right. Buying individual securities, whether it's yeah. stocks or ETFs or, or whatever, it's, it's, it's hard enough. It's difficult. You're, you're, you're fighting not just against the market, but yourself, your own emotions, all, all this sort of stuff. Let's not make it any harder than it needs to be. And I will. But Michael, no, I was always taught to buy low and sell high. Well, that's horrendous advice. I will no longer, I will no longer be pursuing stocks and downtrends. I, I got lucky. I bought, I bought Facebook last, uh, two years ago at the exact bottom. I, I bottom picked Verizon. I had a few winners, and then I got cocky. I said, you know, what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep going. I'm done. Oh my god. I'm done. So right. it doesn't. So just very simply, let's go through some of these charts. And I, I sold all these. So. I'm looking at the uh, the 200-day moving average. It doesn't matter which moving average. Just stocks that are clearly in defined downtrends. If you took this purple off the screen and you just looked at which way the moving average was going, that tells you all you need to know. So PayPal, gone, out of my life forever. Next one. I'm out, by the way. I'm out of PayPal too. Okay. And phase energy. I wish you the best. Out of my life forever. Next. Moderna. Ugh. See you later. Thank this you for the, the loss. That's the biggest piece of shit I've ever seen. Thank you for the loss. And then lastly, most recently, I, th I know I made the case for, for FXI. And no, no I, I sold it for a 1% loss, I think. I just I don't want this aggravation. I don't want this aggravation. Okay. Chart off. All that being said, <laughs> you have to know when to break the rules. Yeah. You have to know when to break the rules. I love so, this. You're so, such a junkie. So <laughs> if... Dude... I'm Jack Bogle in my IRA. I'm Jack Bogle in my 401k. Do you take dogs like uh, on a on a on a football Sunday? You 
Like, do you take underdogs? Do you like take if the price is take, right? If the price is right, if there's value. Okay, so that's the that's the all things being equal. I actually, I'm I'm gonna write a post on this. I am Jack Bogle in my 401k. I don't f around. You are D Gen Bogle. Um, but I am done buying stocks and downtrends now. And I and I would just say this one one thing. If you want to go bottom fishing, then this should be a stock that you wouldn't sell no matter what. In other words, let's say I buy I buy and and I plan to hold FXI. If this thing falls 20%, I'm not doubling down. I'm out, Ugh. right? If Moderna, yeah. if, I, if Moderna falls 40%, what do I know about that company? I'm out. Can I, okay, My point is this. You, hold on. My point is this. If, if it's a company like that I really believe in long-term, Netflix, for example, or, or what, Zillow or, or Amazon or whatever, where it's a stock that, listen, you could honestly say to yourself, if this thing falls 40%, I'm going to double my position. If you're not willing to do that, then you probably shouldn't be buying stocks that are crashing. So I'm just totally on the other side. I will never get bored of buying overreactions and then exulting as like the intellectual king of all I survey when the inevitable uh, turnaround happens. But it just, it, you can't rely on it happening every time. Dude, how, so, many, how many stocks are there that you would, that will give you a chance to buy when they're crashing. It doesn't happen that often. It happens, no, but not I'm that not often. I'm not saying it's a good investment strategy. I'm just saying I love the feeling when I'm right. So when I bought the panic in Netflix in May of 2022, it's one of my greatest trades ever. I, I did it from the back of a taxi boat taking me, this is a true story, taking me from the airport at St. Martin to my hotel in Anguilla. My, for, some, for whatever reason, like I happened to glance at my phone that that day, they had just disappointed on earnings. This stock was in a drawdown from like 400 to 150 or some, or some insane number. And I just said, I don't give a shit if this stock goes to 90, I'm buying it right here. And of course I was early, of course I was early, but I stayed and look at the turnaround. The stock's 500. Dude, I didn't hold you're proving my up, point. And by the way, I bought Netflix in, in November, 2022. You're proving my point. There, there. So Netflix could have done forty, could have gone down forty percent more, and you would not have panic sold because it's Netflix. Yeah, proving my point. But it was in a huge downtrend, so I'm not proving your point. No, you are. I'm saying if there are companies that you believe in so fully oh, that you're not going to get it. scared okay. if they continue to fall. So That's the distinction my point. is the distinction you're drawing is great company in a really terrible situation or terrible company. Yeah, all right. But what what is Meta? In a 75% drawdown with Zuckerberg burning $10 billion a month on the metaverse in at the end of 2022, is it a terrible company or is it still a great company at that point? I'm not sure. It's hard. It's hard. I but know. My, my point is this. If, you're, if you don't have the conviction to buy more if you're down 20%, which you're probably going to be, then you have no business buying stocks. Oh, like that. so that's, that's, the, that's the thing that stops you from doing it to begin with. You go into it, you say- if this falls another 20% of my buying or selling, right. if the answer is I'm selling, then, then don't, don't buy Then don't bother. Then don't bother. Ooh, I like that. Then don't bother. That one I can't argue with. Thank you. Can I do my mystery chart, Chung, Chung Lee? All right. Uh, pop this up, John. Okay. Uh, hang on a sec. All right. These are two companies that are competitors in the same industry. They're financial services businesses. Uh, I think there are four or five publicly traded companies all basically do the same thing. And I found this divergence. This is just price. I found this divergence to start off this year as being very interesting. And I'm, I think one of them has to be lying. The, the reality is that either one of them has to play catch up to the purple reality or the purple one has to come back down to earth where orange is. Oh, I love this. Yeah. So it's, I told you they're finance. I told you they're financial, financial in nature, and there's like f only four or five of these that trade. Are these are these alts? Are these alt managers? No. Uh, are these credit card companies? They are. Okay. Is it Visa? No. Uh, all right. Well, American Express. Which one? American Express is the top one. Okay. You want to solve the puzzle? And the bottom For one, the block. 
is I don't know what it's not MasterCard because I own that. It doesn't look like that. I don't uh, discover. Oh my god! Look Woo! Seven and a half guesses, and you got it. I'm so proud of you. Okay. You're not mad now, see? Okay. Well, we ended this on a good note. I don't used know to get that- so mad. Well, because you used to give shitty clues. I don't know that one of these companies have to be lying. They cater towards different customers. I know you think that, but I'm going to prove that wrong too. John, if you please. So this is drawdown from all-time high. Uh, oh, interesting. Discover is in a 20% mm. drawdown right now. Mm. And it never, as, as you saw in the chart before, it never got back to that late 2021 sugar high. American Express is 1% off its all-time high. Okay, okay, but how about this? Does These Discover are two give you access? very different situations, Does apparently. Discover give you access to the Delta Lounge? Yeah, I, I'm going to go ahead and tell you that on the surface, they do sort of represent two different economies, uh, and I'm going to give you the difference. And I had Google Gemini produce this data, so if it's wrong, take it up with, Wait, with can uh, I, Sundar. Wait, be great? If you could, if you could tell me the average credit score of the Discover customer versus the Amex customer, aha! Well, I cannot. Uh, <laughs> I cannot. Well, let me tell you. There's two things I want to say about this. ChatGPT is worthless. I asked this question six different ways. They refused to even pretend to answer. Chat ChatGPT has been like castrated by somebody. Like the internal AI police are just like shutting down any usefulness if you ask it anything that's to do with finance did Gemini help this, you it was like as of my the my latest data january 2022 i still can't give you answers because a b c d by the time it was on its eighth excuse i said you close the browser gemini gave me an answer in half a second hmm. so just anecdotal just pointing that out um and what they say is that generally you need a 700 plus credit card score to get an Amex. That doesn't mean that's the average and discover obviously plus 630. Well, so there's there a different, but I'm going to tell you a couple things here. So according to Gemini, the discover user tends to be younger, median age 30 to 40 versus 40 to 50 for Amex. Okay. We all would have guessed that Amex is considered to be median household incomes exceeding hundred thousand. Discover is more diverse income range. So not necessarily lower, just a wider spectrum and a median household income around $75,000. American Express has a higher percentage of college grads and postgraduate degrees. Discover is uh, less so, but not at the lowest uh, rung. Um, They do say though, this is the thing that you and I would probably get wrong. Most people would assume that Discover card holders tend to keep a higher balance month over month over month. I was just going to say that. That's not true? It's not not true Hmm. because Discover's big marketing campaign over the last few years has been these cash cash back rewards. They're giving you the cash back for paying off your monthly balance in full. So the way their rewards work is by keeping your balance at zero. So they've actually disincentivized. Uh, it's, it's really Capital One, Visa, and MasterCard that want you to keep the balance longer. That's their business model. That's not Discover's model. So I thought that was really interesting because I would have been wrong about that. Uh, anyway, to me, it seems as though one of these is lying. Uh, the original chart back on, please. Well, I, I think I it's- mean, Amex is, is way, way stretched. Way stretched. I'm going to tell you that Amex is trading on- this, this consumer free-for-all and it's part and parcel with the NASDAQ blow-off top that I think we've just experienced. And I think that's the one that's lying. And Discover's not crashing. It's just not at all-time highs and it doesn't look like an AI stock. And yeah. American Express does. And that's, that's my last word on that. We'll see what happens. I want to thank everyone for coming out and waiting. I know we were a few minutes late. Sometimes things are outside of our control. Shout out to YouTube for giving us the platform. We forgive you. Uh, great job with recovery, uh, Duncan. And to all of my favorite uh, compounders, thank you guys so much for joining us. Tomorrow is Wednesday. So you know what that means, everybody. It's an all-new Animal Spirits, Michael and Ben. Uh, and then on Friday, we're back. Compound and friends. We'll see you then. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Peace out. Whether you're just getting started as an investor or you're managing a multi-million dollar portfolio, Ritholtz Wealth Management has the solution for you. It all starts with building the right financial plan. To speak with a certified financial planner today, 
visit RitholtzWealth.com. Don't forget to check us out at youtube.com slash the compound RWM. Make sure to leave a rating and review on your favorite podcasting app. If you love investing podcasts, check out Michael and Ben every Wednesday morning on Animal Spirits. Thanks for listening. Ritholtz Wealth Management is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Ritholtz Wealth Management and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. Nothing on this podcast should be construed as and may not be used in connection with an offer to sell or solicitation of an offer to buy or hold an interest in any security or investment product. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. No advice may be rendered by Ritholtz Wealth Management unless a client service agreement is in place. I also wanted to very quickly give a shout out to the team. We have been doing a ton of content over the last three weeks. Duncan, John, Daniel, Nicole, Sean, everybody behind the scenes, guys, is crushing it for us. And I know you don't always get to see them or understand what role that they're playing. I promise you, most days, Michael and I have the easiest job here. So I wanted to give a shout out to the team. This weekend, we just had all kinds of breakthroughs in downloads of the audio pod. You guys went nuts for the Semblist show. Animal Spirits is on fire. Just means so much to us. And I really wanted to recognize the people that are putting these shows together and making them something that's really enjoyable for you to listen to after Michael and I do our part. So hey uh, sh- sorry, shout out to the sorry team. Sorry to come in. I, something's gone wrong. We're not, uh, we're not actually live. <laughs> Everything looks right. Hold on one second. All right. What? I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that all over Amazing timing. <laughs> wait, wait. F***ing chef's kiss. Wait, wait. T- keep that on tape. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs>